Before we jump into this episode, I would just like to do a plug for a workshop on building affinity groups that Fossil Free Glasgow will be organizing on Saturday the 8th of December. So keep an eye out for that on our social networks and uh, enjoy the episode. bring positive change, then it doesn't make any sense for us to be organizing in the same old negative way. It's almost our responsibility to kind of show the alternative that we're trying to bring. Hey everyone, this is Fossil Free Now, so this is a podcast about all things related to climate and environmental activism going on in Scotland right now and around the world. Um, Today's podcast is going to be about group cultures and um, the, the sort of environment that we've created around our group here in Fossil Free and how we think that contributes to our activism and our being able to um, stay within that space and feel safe. Um, my name is Dan and I use he, him and they, them pronouns. So yeah, welcome everyone. So I'm um, just going to jump right in with some questions then. Okay, so... Um, I thought maybe it would be good to start by doing another round of just our names and pronouns um, because it's a slightly different group um, from last podcast. So um, maybe start with yourself, Scott. Yep, I'm Scott um, and I go by he, him. I'm Zara and I use she, her pronouns. I'm Yenny, I also use she, her pronouns. I'm Gathel and I use he, him. Louise, she, her. I'm Mathieu and I use he, him. Uh, I was wondering, like, if we could first like just describe like the processes that we've put in place within the group, or some of the things that we do together, which we think helps create like a good sort of group culture. I think it's nice that we always start meetings with like a bit of a like informal catch up and just see what else is going on in our lives out with what we're doing here. And I think that's really nice to kind of acknowledge like what people what people are coming to the table with and, and what they have and, and what where they've been just before they came and I think that's a really good way to kind of find out where we are as a group. I think it's also cool how in our meetings when we get new members we can really fast kind of find out what they're interested in doing and what mm. aspects of the campaign they would like to be involved in and then we can pretty quickly just kind of see what they would like to actually do next and ask if they would like to do this one specific thing or another one and just to kind of accommodate for everybody's uh, needs and aspirations in the group. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good point. Uh, and it's interesting because like, having been in part of this campaign for like three years now, you can see how it's changed through the, the, the times. Because at the beginning... Uh, it feels like the group was trying to respond to something. There was always something going on, either like a, a pension uh, AGM or a meeting with city councillors that we had to be present to, so we had to be p- prepared for that. But we've kind of shifted the way that our group has, uh, is organizing around doing what people as part of the group want to do. So it's been more uh, like a group taking initiative rather than uh, a group responding to, to current events, and that's been quite empowering in a way. I think it's worth saying about the kind of regularity of the meetings. We meet once a week at the same time, in the same place, generally. And 
think that's really helpful for just keeping in touch and checking in and like being able to move forward at like a good pace. Um, and also just to mention, um, like Matthew was saying, it's not always been like this. I personally didn't always feel super confident in the group, but then I started feeling that way after having given opportunities to really take ownership of the campaign and to mm -hmm. after it was made sure that I fully understand what we're talking about and what's the point of the campaign and what are the tactics that we're using. And then I was allowed to kind of teach that to others. And that's what really uh, brought it in for me that I'm a part of this group now and I'm valuable in it. I think the feeling valued thing is like so important. That's something that I've really had like such a strong sense of from this group ever since I joined was that if you, if you want to have that take an opportunity to do something you're not that familiar with, you're going to get the support from the other group members. And yeah, you're going to, um, there's lots of people that you can ask things to um, who have that experience, but also, yeah, so I feel like we're all kind of developing as, yeah, a, no, there's not like a leader in this group or anything like that. There's not like any sort of power structure. It kind of um, allows you to be like more empowered, like Matthew mm. was saying as well. It's interesting you mentioned about the leader because mm. that was something when I joined I was like okay who's in charge and <laughs> I was like trying to to figure that out because that's the kind of that's how a lot of spaces are and then when we had the conversations and it was like okay no one is and everyone takes responsibility for different things and I think that the you talked about like taking ownership the fact that we um, do a rotational facilitation so people take turns facilitating meetings really makes you feel part of it but also like really reinforces the idea that not one person is in charge yeah. and as well you learn a hell of a lot when you're facilitating meetings mm -hmm. um, I think it makes you so much more aware of like the I don't know what's going on around you who's speaking who's not speaking um, it's actually a great learning tool as well. Yeah, and it's just like, um, as well as facilitating and using hand signs for, so that's a big part of our communication, it's like, <laughs> everybody's weaving now. <laughs> um, so if you want to make a point, you just raise your finger up to say, um, and then there's also different ones of like showing agreement, and um, that helps the facilitator make it quite an equal like conversation. Often what happens when women come to spaces is they're, uh, the the men tend to dominate the conversations and by actually having a structure in place that stops that from happening has created a group that is equal. Um, I feel I feel as valid a member as everybody else in this group, which is so empowering. Should we kind of talk through the individual like signals we use? Yeah. I know we can't show them, we can describe them and <laughs> explain like when and where and why we use them because when I was first introduced to them, I was quite embarrassed about being being told it, and I thought like we're not in school mm -hmm. and we don't need this. But actually, it's a really good tool to to see how much space you're taking up, and also to reflect on that, but to make sure everyone gets space mm -hmm. within within the group. Yeah. So one of the ones that we've been doing around the table already is our sort of jazz hands in <laughs> agreement. And so like if you imagine jazz hands, you're waving your hands like back and forth like <laughs> so it's, it's almost like a silent kind of applause. Mm. And it's a way like of checking the sort of temperature of the group when um someone is making um like a proposal or like when someone is putting forward an action point or when we're talking about a certain action or just like reading 
we've read, someone's read something and they're super passionate about it and they want to tell everyone and then they usually get a lot of enthusiasm from the group and it's it's really nice for me like I'd not been in a lot of groups that had done this so I'd been to a conference once that had done this but I'd not like participated for a longer term in the scene like how important that would be for me because I feel like it's like a real sort of commitment to sort of communication yeah. and it's like you're physically expressing yourself so it's like that mind-body connection isn't it where when you can physically see how people are reacting to what you're saying you're just like oh look at all these yeah. people who agree with me I yeah. feel great about myself <laughs> It's the ego trip. Yeah. And then, like, <laughs> after using these hand signs in our group meetings and then our, in our social interaction as well, it actually feels <laughs> bad to go into spaces where they're not used mm. and then you end up doing them accidentally in a lecture or at work or mm, yeah. with your family and you end up just doing jazz hands and everybody will look at you like, you're crazy. <laughs> but it's actually something that I really wish everybody would just do. Yeah, yeah definitely do them. Yeah, and I mean, I suppose I also think it sort of adds a little bit of a light-hearted feeling as well, because, you know, it is something where, you know, I'm sure everybody who's actually especially done the kind of jazz hands ones um, felt it was slightly ridiculous the first time mm-hmm. they did it. Um, and it always has a little bit of humour to it, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's that's a kind of a nice thing, that even if it's sometimes a serious topic, when when people express that, then there is a kind of a bit of a warmth, maybe going to the person who's talking or... Mm-hmm. Yeah, like before coming into these spaces, I think I was like a chronic interrupter. And so like what what we're doing here is a lot of like hands up and pointing to people who also have their hands up. Um, but what's really good is the kind of two, two hands up, which is when you have a really direct point and you want to address something and you want to kind of like skip the cue. And it's not to be abused and it's not to like mm. make yourself heard more, but I think that's been a really good way of for me, for kind of regulating how I interact in the spaces. Yeah, definitely. And following on from that, you definitely start to notice things in other spaces when it's kind of not done so well. I mean, people do interrupt each other, they cut across each other, and there's not any sort of real dialogue. Um, It's the spirit of, like, cooperation, isn't it? It's a communication style that allows you to cooperate with each other rather than being in competition. So when we go to spaces where there's a lot of um, it's like you're competing to get your point out there and we mm-hmm. see this a lot at conferences in our own spaces and it's like actually just sharing that time is really important and hand signals allow you to do that and in active spaces it's especially important that everybody's points are heard and that we have consensus in decision making um, since we might be doing actions for example where it's super important that we trust each other and everybody knows what's going on mm-hmm. and everybody knows that we all agree with this yeah I mean I think just to follow up on that it's it's kind of a way to sort of almost make the dynamics of the group very very sort of obvious to everybody so in some ways like it's almost never the case where we get sort of three direct point you know somebody mm-hmm. pushing their point three times because it, it would become so aware to, to themselves how mm. much they were kind of forcing their so you know it's twice is not unusual but three times I don't know I can't even remember mm-hmm. when anybody's had sort of three mm-hmm. rap speed runs in a row yeah and the the point of like setting up rules for how to interact is actually uh, making an active point to break away from the dominant culture of the because whenever rules are not set then the the uh, implicit rules of society will apply so it's uh, making a point to to try to challenge the hierarchical uh, culture in which we have been brought up so by having these ways of interacting we are setting up 
a culture of uh, where everybody is equal, where everybody's point is uh, is taken, and uh, and also making uh, the 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 space inclusive. And so, uh, in in addition to hand signs, uh, like people may have noticed that we start uh, the interaction by uh, introducing ourselves uh, by explicitly saying which pronouns that we use, and so that's a way to make the space inclusive of uh, of gender diversity. Because uh, yeah, so that as well is uh, is a ground rule that we've set, and that we make sure to respect uh, um, for for cultural change purposes. And like also having like practiced it with each mm -hmm. other, I now expect it of other spaces and demand it when I can. Mm -hmm. And so when we go to new um, like activist groups that might have formed, this is a really important and useful tool to be able to hand to people. And they're super uncomfortable with it at the start, but once you get into the flow and you see how powerful it can be, um, it really changes how you can organise and it, it quickly brings a group together. Yeah, I, th I think so. Like I think there's something really sad about spaces that don't do this to me now because it's like... Um, you're coming together for like a certain purpose and it might be like abolishing capitalism or it might be you know, <laughs> uh, you know building like the new society but you're having to like leave a part of yourself kind of at the door like that's not a re relevant or it's not included and I think the fact that we you know explicitly say you know like we we kind of you know accept you and we love you like no matter who you are and like you know we'll, we'll be like your advocates like in the new society like we want to bring about you know, which is free of Exxon Mobil and Shell. You know, so I think that's like a really, really sweet thing when I go into other spaces here, yeah, because I've recently been doing some equality and diversity work and um, trying to put um, like my pronouns out there all the time and just um, mm -hmm. like signing things with my pronouns and putting them into you know, my Twitter bio and things like that as well. Because mm -hmm. yeah, it's I, th I think it's just how like the sort of like individual level of politics is relating to like the sort of world of change that we want to see and I think this is something this group has really like educated me in which has been really sweet. Mm. Yeah I think there's like a lot to be said for like when you're trying to take these practices outside the group um, but like Louise said once we're confident and used to doing it in these spaces like you can be a bit braver and um, yeah start asking people to do it in other spaces and Certainly pronouns is something that, that I've been asking for in a lot of the other spaces I've been in and people are a bit confused and they're a bit, if I write it on my name badge and things like that, but it starts the conversation and then um, I can explain why and why it's part of a kind of like safer spaces and, you know, then it kind of gets people thinking and there's there's probably... Other things that we can and should do, but we need to be having these conversations about like what makes a safe space so that we can adopt these. So, Zara, what was the story when uh, you had she, her written on your name tag and somebody thought that it was something else? It was like an organisation? Yeah, someone thought I worked for Shelter because they didn't, they didn't have their glasses on and then I wasn't hugely confident in trying to explain why. I mean, I think in some ways it leads from what um, Matt here was saying that in some ways by taking these different uh, we're kind of taking positions in these kind of things it's not you know I think it's perfectly fine for somebody to be involved in the group and maybe not say these things but the norm in the group is this kind of way of doing it and the idea would be in some ways that that we think this is maybe a good norm so you know just by being in a group and, and, and experiencing that over time that people will probably come to maybe might come to appreciate that mm -hmm. but 
I don't think we'd exclude them from the group if they mm. didn't feel comfortable doing it. Mm. It's yeah. yeah, I think it's it's kind of a case of being open to doing things differently and you know when when something does come to our attention that this would make this a safer place or a place where people are more comfortable expressing their opinions then we're happy to try it and do it and you know we've looked at all the other rules that are kind of there normally and questioned them you know is this actually helping us do what we want to do so it's kind of a mixture of like kind of like critically evaluating the existing rules and and being open to like creating new ones together yeah it's also quite like epic when i mean for example when there's like a an older man who comes into our space who has never had to think about gender diversity the existence of trans people anything like that and he has to say his pronoun and like him like the computing of going and that there is a new norm being set and then being like flexible enough to deal with it and try something it's really interesting and kind of a nice experience to see someone's worldview be really shook up just by uh, a behavior that we have in our group mm. yeah and, and in a way we are making a, an active political stance by doing that it's a choice it's not it it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, that an egalitarian model of organizing is going to be more efficient necessarily than a, than a top-down one, but it's just that we think that uh, in order to uh, make a change and to achieve the kind of society that we want, then we need to start organizing that way. Uh, yeah, because like you have other groups uh, that are trying to achieve the same thing as, as us, but they are still uh, organizing in a very top-down way, a uh, leader-led movement. But so, yeah, so it's trying to find the place where we as a group can interact in that world uh, led by like leader-led movements. Mm. Yeah, exactly. I feel like if we're trying to bring positive change, then it doesn't make any sense for us to be organizing in the same old negative way. It's almost our responsibility to kind of show the alternative that we're trying to bring. Mm. Mm. You pretty much said what I wanted to say, <laughs> but in like a more articulate way. Um, yeah, no, I think there's like a lot in that history. The left has kind of been a wee bit maybe toxic over the last 30 or 40 years. A bit toxic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little bit of an understatement there. Um, and, yeah, I guess it's kind of incumbent on us to kind of evaluate our own practice and how we sort of look out for each other. Um Activism is very emotionally draining as well, and we need to be able to cope with that. And I think we've not, well, see, we've not, I wasn't born. I'm divesting myself of all responsibility here. Um, but yeah, like I think we need to be better at dealing with the emotionality of activism. Yeah, I think it helps as well that through our other activities and networks, most of us have either participated in or even. Um, facilitated workshops around power and privilege and mainstreams and margins and having a look at those different group dynamics and that gives us um, a kind of sound basis for making these these kind of decisions around how we want to run the group. I, actually most of us were strangers to each other when we started this we just came to uh, fossil free maybe because of one connection but I was with a group of people totally different backgrounds to me trying to work on a shared goal and having like different uh, communication structures in place 
helped us bond quite quickly and I, then it just became a room full of friends that I came mm. to every week that I felt valid and valuable with. And through doing that, I guess we become quite a good antidote to a lot of the sort of um, worst parts of modernity. So, I mean, like, we do live in, like, a mental health crisis just now, right? So I think it's about one in five people roughly have depression or anxiety mm -hmm. at any given time. Mm -hmm. um, if we are serious about social change, then it's kind of incumbent on us to create the sort of forms of being with each other that can be sustainable for any future society. Mm -hmm. I think also that's something that um, I felt is quite interesting about this group is that even though it's got a kind of, you know, more decentralised structure... Um, that you know, it doesn't meetings don't tend to drag on for ages because I know there's a lot of you know if you, I've been part of groups where yeah there isn't clear you know the, I suppose one of the advantages that we might get from hierarchical structures that you can get somebody who can sort of move things along and sort of take people's points into consideration mm -hmm. but not not sort of curtail them a little bit when they tend to drown on a bit drag on um, and I think in this group meetings tend to flow organically but they don't usually last longer than about an hour and a half you know mm -hmm. which that's not the case in a lot of groups um yeah so that's why we kind of <laughs> do always have a facilitator in every meeting meeting but it's a different one each week so that we don't have a leader we just have someone to make sure the con conversation flows and that we end the meetings in time because it's um also really draining if you just have to sit in meetings that just go on and on um, so yeah it's also important to be mindful that people have lives uh, other than the campaign as well and everybody just needs to go to sleep at some point <laughs> <laughs> there's there's also the emotional mental burden of being a leader mm -hmm. like so in times where we haven't been perfect and maybe one of us have picked up more work than we should have not because of the fault of a group but because we haven't raised it um, I've definitely been guilty of this in the past and it it brought me close to burnout because I felt like if I didn't keep working on this then this campaign wouldn't go anywhere mm. and actually taking a step back and saying no there's a group of people that I can do this with was was really important. Yeah and just on that it also feels like it's okay to take a week off mm. like you you know that like the show's gonna go on without you and people would rather you were looking after yourself than than you know taking on too many things so I feel like there's a lot of obligations out there and that people like take on and then you feel like you disappoint people if you're not there and people feel disappointed when you're not there and I feel like with this dynamic I can quite easily say like I'm not going to make it this week and no one's no one thinks I'm letting anyone down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it could be a good rule of thumb. Even like if you feel like the campaign wouldn't go on without you, then um, then you should change something in the way you're doing things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, because uh, there was a time in our in our campaign past <laughs> in which uh, I remember like when we were down to uh, like fewer people than we are now. Uh, I was put in a position uh, when I had to be the leader for. Uh, for a couple of months and uh, that was a, that was a lot of drain because I felt that like it was up to me to come up with an agenda for every meeting to come up with like a list of potential actions that we had to pursue and uh, and then kind of like uh, giving tasks to people which is much less engaging for them as well so 
uh, not only is it much less efficient to work in that way, but also um, it kept it it it, um, it kind of pushed people away from the campaign because nobody wants to be given tasks. You want to come up with your own task and actually own them, uh, which is something that uh, by like taking a leader-less approach to organizing, then we've made sure that like people are actually keen on contributing what they want to. Yeah, I think that's like a really interesting, amazing point. Like when I've been to the meetings with um, Fossil Free, they often feel like they're very like organizing meetings or something like that. They're very action focused, but as well as like being um, like theoretically focused. So we will say, oh, um, a member will make a proposal, and this is why um, I'm interested in this. And that yeah, that person sort of gets to develop. You can see that sort of happening as an activist. I felt that as an activist within Fossil Free. So I think that's like, it's a really empowering experience getting to do that. Mm. And um, I suppose for me it also maybe contributes to perhaps the resilience of the, the group and its sustainability just for the fact that, um, you know, over the summer in general, because a lot of people away, there was a bit of downtime. And then also with our campaign, we kind of hit a bit of a brick wall with engaging with the councillors. And actually we bounced back you know, there was a little bit of a low point, but actually, I think, um, you know, different people were taking responsibility, and I think, I think we just moved on quite quickly. There was, a, I think, there was one meeting when there was a little bit of uncertainty about what we were going to do, and then the, you know, the idea came up of maybe doing a podcast and engaging a wider group, and then we just kind of went forward from there. And I think, uh, I think that's partly because of maybe that structure that there wasn't this reliance on one person, and if that one person was down then perhaps that would have affected the overall mental mentality of the group. Yeah, just to add to that, it's um, we have to, like, movements have cycles. Like, we're not linear. We're not just going to go up and up and get more energy and build more people. We're going to peak and then drop and then move up again. It's just, it's a natural way of uh, groups. And I think allowing downtime and allowing low moments and being present in those and working through them as a group is just as important as whenever you're getting loads of attention and loads of media and you've got your moments. These, these are all part of being an activist and being in a group. Yeah, I think that the safe space that we create makes it easy for for you to say like I don't want to do this like this isn't for me like this isn't something that excites me this isn't something I'm particularly interested in doing so I'd rather not and I think a lot of the time with organizing it's like this has to be done and someone has to do it and it often falls people take take it because they feel like oh if I don't do this then we're letting everyone down or we're not doing it properly um but actually, we're all honest enough to say, look, this isn't working for me. Is it working for anyone else? And if it's not, like, change? Yeah, and, like, lobbying is such a good example of that. And what's just happened with our group was we'd all been lobbying. We'd been going to meet counsellors. We were feeling drained and a bit down after a lot of those meetings and interactions. And it... And lobbying seems like the strategy, particularly in divestment, that's the way we're going to win and allowing ourselves to say no and knowing that the people respect that has really helped keep our campaign going. Yeah, definitely. And like speaking of lobbying, that was also when um, one of the other key strengths of our group also came out, which was just how willing we are to support each other just emotionally as well, because it was really, really hard to kind of go 
face your counselors and be rejected by them and um yeah it was really draining so it was great that you could actually like unpack those experiences with your group and we made sure that everybody had someone to speak to about what it was like and that like all the experiences were unpacked afterwards I think what would also be kind of useful to talk about is like our actions as well um, and how our group structure and, and trust allowed us to do mm-hmm. those. Yeah, so um, we've had a lot of actions in the past um, few years with Fossil Free, so um, does anybody want to speak to any of those at the moment? Like, Well, with the Nicola Sturgeon one, the, the most relevant. Um, so there was a youth climate event called Climate 2050 um, and this was a kind of government government sponsored climate event um, that's perhaps the best way of putting it um, <laughs> so it had Nicola Sturgeon as a keynote speaker and the whole event was a very sort of um, how would I put it corporate, corporate <laughs> exactly yeah yeah a corporate way of sort of um, presenting climate change and what to do about it so um any bold political solutions were pretty much off the table and we were kind of given an event where we were encouraged to think about, I don't know, I'm perhaps simplifying a little bit here, but um, recycling more or um, making those sort of individual consumption decisions. Mm. I think we kind of agreed that for a lot of young people, this was a sort of young people event which anybody could sign up for and this would have been like their first interaction with the climate movement. And for us, what was being sort of sold to us sold being really the operative word I think um, was quite unsatisfactory um, and also Nicola Sturgeon was given a sort of carte blanche to um, market herself as a climate leader um, to kind of boast about all the Scottish government's great achievements obviously ignoring the massive investments in oil and gas that are um, perilling our own future I mean, the event was so stage-managed that there was four questions that were handpicked by Nicola Sturgeon. And what, what was one of them? It was one of them, when did you become a climate yeah. warrior? Yeah, when did yeah. you become a climate warrior? <laughs> you know, I totally like blanked that out after the, after the action. Yeah, can I, can I just yeah, clarify? Totally. It was, the question thing, it was made out as if you could send in a question you wanted her mm-hmm. to answer. But the questions were picked and changed to be exactly what they wanted to answer, which... I think it was just, like, it was offensive to young people. Like, we wanted some honesty from the people of the crisis that we were moving into, and that's why we felt it was important to show up at this event and give an example to young people in the room who were there for the right reasons, to say, actually, we don't have to engage with the climate crisis like this. Um, And how that all came about was because we decided to do like a zine making workshop together and like had that like nice fun space and uh, we all felt quite comfortable to be able to do quite a high profile action together Um, and that was because of that group confidence and trust that we built. Yeah so what we actually ended up doing was that we made a bunch of uh, zines with the theme of Nicola Sturgeon's um, climate quotes or more like oil quotes stuff like (laughs) the Scottish government will do everything in its power to get the last drop of oil from the North Sea and stuff like that. Which is what she said. Yeah, so yeah. We just made a book of quotes of what she has said as her support in the oil and gas industry. Yeah, exactly. And so then we had like a twofold tactic where we, um, when she was given the speech, we 
spread those zines around the space so that everybody could read what she was also saying just last year. And then um, at the same time, uh, about 20 minutes into the speech, Treya was just um, stood up with the, a sheet, a block art, what do you yeah. say? Uh, yeah. banner. A banner that had one of those quotes painted on it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the banner didn't last <laughs> very long, did it? <laughs> It got about 20 seconds before one of the event organisers um, came and tore it down. Um, Literally <laughs> tore it. Yeah, 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 the poor thing ripped. Um, <laughs> but what was so like, cool about that was because there were three of us that were really public facing, but actually there were like four more people in the audience like taking pictures, like giving out scenes, and we'd all chosen a role in that action that we felt comfortable with. And like we really explored that as a group to try and find a way that we could um, protest and do an action that didn't leave people feeling vulnerable. Mm. Yeah, exactly, and that's why um, the action ended up being successful because people who were attending the event said that they first saw the zines, they saw the context of what we were prote protesting and then they saw us standing up with or without the sheet uh, and then having those two kind of approaches together is what made it click for them, they made them understand what was, what was going on. Can we, like, yeah, from this point, can we maybe talk about uh, the importance of having an affinity group in order to, uh, for, to allow yourself to be put in a position of vulnerability? Because mm -hmm. we see uh, at the moment, for instance, yeah, you have the Extinction Rebellion uh, movement, which is calling on people to do direct action to, against the British government because of their uh, inef well, inadequate climate targets. And uh, they're calling for people to put themselves in, in a position of quite dram dramatic position of vulnerability when they're where they're uh, can be arrested. But um, so if for people to do that, it is that important that they have like a, a, a group around them that allows them to to feel supported when they do it. So like when we were doing that action, um, like I said, after twenty seconds, the the banner gets torn off us. And the three of us are just left standing there, um, and potentially, like that's a kind of really kind of vulnerable um, position to be in. I think I was in the middle. I'm, I'm outing myself as in. I was in. Were you? Ah, oh, right. Okay. Oh, it was, must be must be you then held my hand throughout it. And honestly, like I mean, it's something so simple, but um, kind of emblematic of a wider sort of feeling of solidarity and sort of comradeship. Mm, yeah. They almost kind of turned it from something that could have been like embarrassing to something that was actually quite empowering, and we bloody held that space and made it awkward. And make no mistake, they did try and embarrass you. Mm -hmm. You were referred to several times by Nicola Sturgeon mm. and the sort of security, the the people running the event, made multiple attempts to try and get you to leave. Mm -hmm. mm. Uh, yeah, and having. The kind of a small group of us to kind of make the decisions together, the decision to stay standing and the decision decision to not leave. Um, it was really useful that we could actually consult each other and support each other throughout it. If it was just one person, it would have been really easy to sit down or leave. Mm. And we had people in the audience that were going to leave with us as well. So if we had any trouble from security, we'd already thought about our exit plan because we didn't. You can't predict how an action is going to go, but you can try and work your way through all the different options. 
and so the decision was that everybody who was there would walk out together and that feeling was amazing because these people stood up in the audience that hadn't seemed to be involved and it added more weight to our action as well and it's really important to have that kind of support and care for leaving an action because your adrenaline's really high and you need you need that emotional support mm. from other people. Another role that we had in the action was that there was people taking pictures so what what was going on was being documented and also we had another person outside who was uh, kind of compiling a report of what went down <laughs> and why we were doing what we were doing and kind of doing the outreach of the action. Mm-hmm. I I'm I'm really concerned about people that are now walking into civil disobedience without having the knowledge of what actually involves to do because that's not really consent um, if you've not got support for after if you haven't got the knowledge of what you're walking into you can't actively consent to doing that then and a lot of the work that we do is slow work so like building group trust and relationships and creating alternatives is slow and I really feel Extinction Rebellion's like panic and like need to go fast because of the deadlines that we have mm. but we can't we can't win this if we don't do the slow work as well yeah in a way yeah the way that our campaign has been making sure to do it for the long run that's been very powerful but on the other hand i feel that in extinction rebellion there is there is something that has been appealing to people is this sense of urgency and i can really understand why a lot of people are like coming together in the hundreds in mm-hmm. a small cafe to really talk about how to take on the British government. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but maybe it can be interesting to see how groups like us that are trying to really set up those cultures of, uh, of collaboration and uh, creating a safe space so that people can be in there for the long run. So trying to see how our groups can cooperate with those uh, bigger uh, campaigns for social change like Extinction Rebellion. Mm. For that kind of larger groups that are really new and really excited it's really important to maybe just get educated on these issues like get educated on how to support your your activists and how to make sure they know what they're getting into if they're getting arrested on purpose and um, make sure there's support for them afterwards. And whether we like it or not, we're all part of the same movement. Mm-hmm. And we're actually, we have ancestors in this movement as well that we need to learn from. So you go back a couple of years ago, we are doing a lot of things that the Occupy movement started before that. There's been movements like the Civil Rights Movement in America. We've all learned from each other. And by starting a new group and not taking those learnings, you kind of put yourself behind a bit. The state already knows all of those strategies and they've already learned how to adapt to it. Like mass civil disobedience, blocking roads, the state knows how to react to that. Like large protests, the state knows how to do that. What we need from groups now is to come up with new forms of protest and new strategies that the state haven't had a way to react to that might be enough to light up something else. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's interesting to if you think of uh, yourself as reacting to the way that the state is organized, and yeah, like working in a leaderless movement can, makes it very difficult for the for the, the the state to actually react to you because the way that they've organized is uh, by through a hierarchical structure, and so they tr- like the police works in a way that they try to find a leader in any movement. And then that's how they take down movements, is by uh, arresting leaders. But if the movement has no leader, then that makes it much more resilient and potentially much more, uh, much more damaging for the state. Um.
And if you're going to look for an example of mass civil disobedience, I would look at Enda Galenda, um, which is like a yearly run protest um, or mass civil disobedience, which has like 4,000 to 6,000 people show up for a weekend to block a coal mine. And they do that without leaders. And they do it very successfully. And this year's one was their biggest one. And they managed to block a train mm. line um, uh, where the coal goes through Germany and block that for a full day. So it's an economic hit on those companies. And it also is very public. And it also, when you're a person in that moment, you feel so empowered because you're like, wow, I can really achieve something with all these people. But they have set up the tools. They run trainings a few days before to like what we use in our meetings about hand signs, about consensus and about affinity groups. And having that small group of people, like four or five people within that giant movement, allows you to make decisions as a group of how you want to interact at every single moment. Mm. You need to be flexible because you don't know how the state is going to react to you. So having an affinity group with shared values is vital. Yeah, Endergalenda is a good example of like a, a group that has managed to combine the mass mobilization aspect of uh, of Extinction Rebellion as well as the the, the non-hierarchical structure of small groups like ours. Mm-hmm. So maybe I was thinking like that one of the way that our group can potentially contribute to this larger movement is by going and training people up. Uh, delivering delivering trainings on how to organize, how to create an affinity group, how to conduct a supported direct action, um, and so that people can actually do these things uh, uh, without necessarily um, f- relying on a leader that tells them what to do and potentially getting them arrested. Yeah, I just wanted to say as well, because we've made it sound as if it's all a bit kind of like fluffy and we're all agree on everything and we don't but what we do have is a good framework for how to disagree in a way that is respectful and helpful to sort of further in the cause mm-hmm. and I think that that's one of the things I've learned is that in other groups and other situations like dealing with that conflict normally doesn't doesn't go well and doesn't actually have any kind of good outcomes whereas we're able to disagree on things um, and so whatever we're doing kind of going forward we have that ability to disagree and to create better strategies because of that. Hi everyone, this has been Fossil Free Now. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, we have all of the links to any materials we discussed in this podcast in the show notes so you can catch them there. And also follow us on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. Yeah, thanks very much. Thank you.